awakening in this teaching is often described as a process or a journey in which there is a falling away or a releasing of everything that clouds our hearts and mind, of everything that obscures our capacity to live aligned with what is true and what is free, with peace, with wakefulness. Sometimes it's described as a journey of relinquishing and ultimately, and I like this part, uprooting anything that disbars us from knowing a limitless, the freedom of an unbounded heart. The unbounded heart that the Buddha and the sages and actually the wise in all traditions of the past and present have really assured us as being a possibility for all of us in this life. So what falls away is suffering. What also falls away is, are the causes of suffering. The first and the second noble truth. And that falling away is what leads to the third noble truth, the teaching of liberation, the teaching of freedom, which is really at the heart, at the essence of this path. Now, in one of the maps of awakening, this sense of boundless freedom is is marked, or we might say distinguished, by the falling away of doubt, the falling away of clinging or attachment, and the falling away of all beliefs in an independent, eternal self-existence, independent, abiding self, and all the views that we can hold about ourselves. Now, of course, it's very important to understand that that falling away does not leave a vacuum. It does not leave a, a nothingness. You know, there is no vacuum that exists in nature. Rather that the falling away of one thing lives in relationship or coexists in relationship with the arising or the birth of something else. So what arises or what is born in this map are also its unshakable faith, true and the deepest of all refuges. What arises is the non-clinging mind, the non-clinging heart, the freedom of not gov being governed by anything in this world, inwardly or outwardly the boundless freedom beyond all definition. And what also arises is a very true and liberating understanding of what in this teaching is all often called emptiness, sometimes a difficult word for us to relate to, but hopefully I'll explain it. The non-selfing, the understanding that heals all divisions that liberates the greatest and abiding 
love and compassion. Now, Ajahn Chah once put it that when everything falls away that can fall away, then what remains is true. So this evening I'd really like to reflect on the ways in which doubt and clinging and selfing are very interwoven facets. The way that they arise together, doubt and clinging and selfing, the way that they strengthen and feed each other, and also how they fall away together. I'd also like to reflect on how faith and non-clinging and the understanding of emptiness are equally interwoven, arising together, supporting each other. To look at the ways in which doubt and clinging and selfing really keep us locked in what seems like an endless cycle and circle of struggle and suffering, and the way that faith and non-clinging and non-selfing, that the understanding and the maturity of these three really breaks that cycle of struggle and suffering. That they are the fruition of wisdom, the characteristics of a liberated heart. And also I'd like to mention that the way that the Buddha talked about this map is as it being so profoundly transforming that it's really not a kind of like momentary uh, experience. In, in fact, one of the metaphors that the Buddha used is that wood turns into ashes, but ash doesn't turn back into wood. I, I really like this metaphor of falling away, you know, rather than getting rid of or overcoming or transcending or annihilating. To me, there, there's something very, very gracious, very graceful in this metaphor of seeing things fall away. Now, many of you who've practiced for a time and even those of you who've come here for the first time can probably relate to this because we do see things fall away. I mean, look back to the first day of the retreat, you know, when you felt like you were drowning in dullness, you know, or, you know, the crisis of agitation, you know, the, the kind of aversion, the, the restlessness. And remember? Wasn't that long ago? It's a, a few days ago, you know, when we were hearing this from many of you. Where is it now? I mean, some of it might perk its head up, but you'd acknowledge probably in this week, over these days, there are actually things falling away. And you know, in, for people who practice for some time, there's, there's more of a sense of faith in that as they go out into their lives. There's that sense of, you know, gee, what, I'm, I'm not shouting when I'm in a traffic jam. You know, or like when my kids are upset with me, I, I don't feel like chewing their heads off, you know, or, or I see the homeless person in the street and I'm much more able to look them in the eye and, and to feel connected without fear. 
that there can be this sense of things just kind of falling away, probably maybe some of the extremes of greed or, or rage or anxiety or judgment, they begin to soften. And hopefully you've also noticed that in the falling away of some of those extremes, it really kind of distort and, and you know, cause such, such sorrow in our lives, that in the falling away, we also see the arising of a greater sense of peace, of calmness, of acceptance, of compassion. And it's a natural process. You know, just like the leaves, the trees will shed their leaves in the fall. There's something, a very natural process. And yet it is also important to acknowledge it as a process, to really notice that in our practice and our life. And admittedly, this process is not always linear. You know, it's not always predictable. But it is a process that can be seen, and increasingly this process is seen as being deeply trustworthy. Now I'd like to begin with this trio, this triple knot gem of doubt and clinging and selfing. Now, doubt many of us, I think, probably know as being one of the most difficult and painful of all mental states, that it can be paralyzing, it can be debilitating, and it's really exhausting. And we can doubt everything. You know, doubt is kind of like an equal opportunity employer. You know, we can just doubt everything. It, it's, it can make it, its appearance in anxiety and uncertainty. About every decision we're asked to make in our life can provoke 10,000 thoughts and waves of fear. We can doubt other people. You know, their motivations, their actions. Doubt can surround our own sense of direction and identity. Who should we be? What, what should we seek for? You know, should we be a, a kind of business tycoon or a renunciate? You know, should we live a solitary life or find a partner? You know, should we have children or ordain? You know, should we be a Buddha or a mover and a shaker? You know, it can like really surround what we do with our time, what we do with our attention. You know, should I sit or watch TV? You know, it gets that basic, you know? Should I practice or turn on the TV? Should I, should I go on a pilgrimage, you know, or go to Florida? <laughs> Doubt makes it very hard to get out of bed in the morning, to face the endless choices of the day. It, it can have a, it be a bit of a tyrant in our life. It's like there's too many possibilities, too many choices. You know, even here you can see it, you know, oh, what kind of tea I should have today. <laughs> you know, kind of salad dressing. Uh, you know, years ago we used to have like a mixture, you know, a hodgepodge of different kind of china here, plates. We still got it in the cups, but in the plates. And 
sometimes it would take so long to get to the serving tables because we'd be going through these piles of plates, you know, should I have the flowered one or the white one? It's like... <laughs> but I think doubt can be almost existential too, you know, who are we? We, we see in our practice, and you see it over the days here, the, the kind of I'm happy in one moment, I'm sad in another moment, I'm up, I'm down. And there's a sense of what do you trust in inwardly? What can you really rest upon inwardly? Are we anybody at all? You know, I once came across the saying by someone who said, I'd rather be a fake nobody, a fake somebody, than a real nobody. You know, it's kind of like that sense of existential angst almost. Feeling like we balance on a cliff edge often in our life, afraid of falling, not sure what we can trust in, and our response to that is often to grab hold of anything at all that looks like it will keep us safe. You know, there's a a story of a man, you know, running away, being pursued by a tiger, you know, and his only escape route is to jump over a cliff edge, you know, and he holding on to the branch, dangling there with the tiger drooling above him, you know, a rocky precipice below, you know, and he calls out to to nowhere, you know, please, is there anybody out there? Save me. Big silence. You know, so it gets louder. Please, please, if anybody's out there, God, please save me. You know, much to his surprise, his voice booms out and says, I'm here. You know, and the, the man answers, well, you know, I'll do anything you say. I'll proclaim your name to the ends of the earth. If only you'll save me. And so the voice booms out, says, all right, I'll save you. Let go of the branch. And the man says, anybody else? But you, you can really sense how, how doubt is kind of like a virus, you know, that, that has this power to infect everything. And, and sometimes it affects everything we do in our practice, you know. It's not so unusual that somebody will come to a group or an interview and they'll say they feel like a fraud in the retreat. You know, that they're going through the motions, you know, and they look like a great yogi and they've got Birkenstocks. And, <laughs> but they, they don't trust their practice, you know, they feel like they're just pretending. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the interview groups. Now, any of those seeds of doubt, that's a place they're really going to flourish, aren't they? You know, you listen to other people, they're having these great ecstatic experiences, you know, or connectedness, and you can come out of an interview group feeling pretty crestfallen, you know, like their practice is so much better than mine, you know, and you can really get this sense how doubt feeds endlessly on these feelings of unworthiness, of not being good enough, of insufficiency, of self-judgment. And we can be sure that doubt generates a whole lot of storytelling, comparing, evaluating, a lot of craving for certainty. Now, it's not so often that we just pause to ask ourselves what doubt is. You know, and do we recognize doubt as doubt? 
And being mindful that I'm really speaking about debilitating doubt here, and I'm not speaking about the questioning, investigating doubt, which is so encouraged in this tradition. But this debilitating doubt, and can we see doubt not just as an opposite of faith, of something to get rid of, but to see doubt as the ground out of which unshakable faith arises. Just as the lotus grows out of muddy waters. Now in some ways we can almost see some of the the kind of deep longing sense in doubt. You know, something very powerful, very deep longing of the heart that really sometimes is what brings us here. You know, just like doubt really is what made Siddhartha leave his palace. You know, and that deep sense of longing, that sense of aspiration can be so wholesome, can be so inspiring. But you can sometimes see that that longing, that longing for, for something more sure, more unshakable than this changing world. You can see that that longing, when it gets coupled with this sense of unworthiness or incompleteness or self-doubt, then that longing turns into, well, it started out as part of it so wholesome, really turns into something debilitating. Because when longing is coupled with a sense of insufficiency or incompleteness, it can never be fulfilled because it gets translated into a longing for certainty, for reliability, for predictability, for a a kind of trustworthy world and self. And that's actually the suffering of doubt, the doubt that can never be answered, the doubt that never can be consoled. And it causes further suffering. And at times, I have to say that I think that doubt is sometimes the refusal to suffer, the refusal to meet life as it is. You know, when Freud, in talking about neurosis, he said, you know, 25% of the suffering in this life is unavoidable, you know, comes with having a body, being born, all the rest of it. And the other 75% is born of trying to avoid the unavoidable which is what we spend a lot of our time doing, in truth. The first noble truth, that there is unsatisfactoriness in this world, we actually know this to be true. And everything in life tells us that it's true. But doubt, in some ways, is a denial of that truth. We know there is unsatisfactoriness in this imperfect world, but we don't always see that we suffer and struggle when we demand that it be different than it is. We know in our hearts that we live in an unstable, unpredictable world, devoid of guarantees and certainty. Events come unbidden to us, times unwelcome to us. Sometimes we get what we want, sometimes we lose what we have and we don't and we get what we don't want. 
But doubt is sometimes just a simple denial of that basic reality of living. But it's also possible to rest in that knowing, to rest our heart in the knowing that all conditioned things, all things that are born of conditions, whether it's our bodies or someone we love or a passing mind state, that all things born of conditions are intrinsically unstable and no refuge, cannot offer a lasting refuge. This is the ground of peace. This is the ground of wisdom to know that in response to the first noble truth. Or we can follow the pathway of doubt saying, this should not be so. It should not be so. Following the pathway of doubt means leaning forward into what we imagine is going to be a more reliable moment. And if we set our hearts on those pathways of denial, of disconnection from what is, then disappointment will be our daily diet. Disappointment will be a daily diet. But it's also so important to see that, that it's that same disappointment that can be the first stepping stone on the path of liberation. Certainly it was for Siddhartha. If we can really read the message of disappointment, or disappointment can be yet another step on the pathway of trying to find the certainty and reassurance that conditioned states can never provide. In my understanding, doubt can go three ways. One is into despair and depression, a sense of helplessness, powerlessness, resignation. The second way that doubt can go is into rigidity, you know, where we cling ever more tightly, ever more resolutely attached to our views, our opinions, our habits, our beliefs of how things should be. It's, it's kind of like the, like, the, like the skeptic, you know, who says, I don't believe in climate change. You know, I don't believe in climate change. It doesn't have anything to do with us. You know, we've got a cool day in summer. It's, see, there's no climate change. See, there's no climate change. Yeah, this global warming's a myth, isn't it? Otherwise, we'd all be hot. Hmm? Never mind, <laughs> never mind that the ice caps are melting, the deserts are spreading, sea levels are rising. My belief is true. Doubt can be directed towards our practice. You know, uh, uh, this year, I can't remember last year or something. I was teaching the day on the kind of stages of awakening, and, and I started the day by asking the people who were there to, asking people to raise their hand if they had confidence that they could be liberated in this lifetime. Nobody raised their hand. Nobody raised their hand. I was amazed. That it's a doubt in our worth and, and possibility, and sometimes it manifests. Sometimes I think it's really important to see how doubt manifests in a kind of ambivalence towards our practice. 
you know, about whether we should show up, whether we should continue, you know. It doesn't matter if I skip the city, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm mindful. You know, Jack tells the story of an elderly man who was really terrified of flying and he'd never, never flown because of his fear. So first time he was going to go on a plane with his son. And at the end of the flight, his son asked him, you know, was it really as terrible and as frightening as you imagined it to be? And his elderly father answered, no, but I didn't put all my weight down. But I think it was really, it's helpful to say how doubt makes us prone to attachment. Now, also very important to understand that I use the word attachment in a very specific way of clinging. I'm not speaking about you know the very healthy attachments a child needs to have to flourish and grow. You know the very healthy attachments of caring for people we love. I'm using a very very specific way of clinging of holding tightly than anything that seems to promise any semblance of certainty or reliability. We become attached to people, to ideas, to roles, to mental states. We long, so long to be able to say, I am, I have, I know, for life just to stand still for us as if we're trying to hold on to a a life ring in a stormy ocean. And perhaps if we really look very closely, we see that in truth, the only thing that keeps anything fixed for more than a moment is our view of it. Mm -hmm. And yet in this unstable world, it can feel like our views are preferable to reality. There's something else we can do. We can separate doubt from fear. We can actually doubt our doubts. You know, we can doubt our views. We can doubt our attachments. We can doubt our clinging. That doubting our doubts sometimes opens a doorway to exploration, to questioning, rather than seeking this path of 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 demanding certainty. Now, I think it's very understandable that we have a difficult relationship and uh, some resistance to looking at the nature of instability fearlessly. Um, But that understandable difficulty in looking at instability fearlessly does lead us to seek solidity, what we call attachment or clinging. And in this teaching, attachment or clinging is a verb. It's a process. And I would say that attaching and clinging and selfing are just different words for the same process. It's not that I cling or I am attached, but attaching, clinging, selfing are just different words for the same process. Now we can actually, this is not difficult to see because we, and we sort of imagine we've got this independent eye, you know, the pilot in the cockpit, you know, the, you know, the guy and the per- woman in the control tower, you know. We sort of imagine that, but if we look at it very closely, it's not, not really, it doesn't really look that way, does it? 
because we really see how our self of the moment is really shaped and formed by clinging of the moment. Now, it's clear in that you're probably in your practice today. You know, if you cling to a mental state, if there's clinging to a mental state of aversion, you know, there's an aversioning selfing going on. You know, and the world looks very miserable, depressed. Everybody looks depressed. If there's a clinging to sense of suffering, then I'm the sufferer. If there's a clinging to a planning, I'm the planner. And the view of self really only lasts as long as the clinging, doesn't it? Otherwise, you'd have the same one all the time. But the view of self only lasts as long as that particular focus of clinging is lasting. And then it moves off. I, I think of selfing as a kind of grazing. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's sort of grazing. It's sort of indiscriminate grazing, you know. This kind of, we're sort of grazing through mental states and sights and sounds and events. There's this sort of grazing tendency going on throughout the day. And, you know, there's no doubt that some of that, you know, happens thousands of times in a single day, doesn't it? Clinging, selfing. And some of it has a long history, like to doubt, clinging to doubt, doubting has a long history. And then it looks like it's a more true, you know, we think that's more really me. <coughs> it's more really me, because I've seen it more times. So that looks like it's more really me. It, it, it doesn't make it that way, it just means that's what we're prone to graze upon. <laughs> and it means we're more inclined to, to cling to. It's like a habit. So what we see is doubt and clinging and selfing going round and round. And this is the intrinsic ground in which faith plants its root. Because if we liberate doubt from fear and despair, it really does turn into investigation and questioning. And you know, investigation is said in this teaching to be the most important and fertile ground of awakening. Faith, in my experience, is a slow-blooming flower. And it really grows in the ground of direct and personal experience and understanding. And faith begins to grow in those moments with we, when begins to grow in the moments when we stop arguing with the first noble truth of unreliability and instability. When we stop arguing with the reality that we live in a world where nothing can really be grasped hold of or made to stand still. A teacher was once asked, and some of you have heard me say this before, what is the secret of your radiance, your happiness? And he answered, it is a complete unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. <laughs> for most of us, that's life. And that complete and unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable, to me, is faith. It is faith. Faith in Pali, the word is sata. It means to rest your heart upon. You could say what we put our weight down upon. And what we rest our heart upon 
is what we know to be unarguably true. What we rest our heart upon is the knowing of impermanency and stability that runs through all things, the knowing that all things that are born will pass, including ourselves. We rest our heart upon the knowing that we will all have our own measure in this life of the lovely and the unlovely. In this life, we will all have our own measure, adversity and ease of love and loss. And we cannot really entirely control the unfolding of any of these. And perhaps we put our weight down upon and rest our heart upon the knowing of the futility of trying to grasp the ungraspable. And perhaps we know and can put our weight down upon that despite all the difficult circumstances that come into our lives, that the causes of joy and the causes of sorrow truly live within our own hearts. Perhaps we know that it is the true cultivating of integrity and kindness that eases our way through this rocky and uncertain life. And perhaps we put our weight down upon that. And faith has an embodiment. You know, faith is not an idea. It's not a feeling. I think faith has an embodiment, which is really living in the light of what we know to be true. It is faith. Faith, in my understanding, is not a destination. It's a journey. And sometimes, initially, it's a leap of faith. You know, I, I think if you think back to the early days of this retreat, you know, a lot of people tell me they think a lot about meditating. <laughs> they're not actually meditating, but they're thinking about practicing. And, and you know that how here through these days have we've talked and nagged about the commitment to the schedule and the continuity. Not because the schedule is holy. I mean, cows have a commitment to grazing. <laughs> but, but because we know, we know in our own experience, that the commitment to continuity is a commitment to wakefulness. And that's not just about being on retreat. That's about being off retreat. That it's a commitment to feeding and nurturing a heart of depth and calmness and wisdom. But look at what we surrender in that commitment. Look at what we surrender when we put our weight down upon the schedule or the continuity. We surrender the habits of distractedness. We surrender a lot of doubt. You know, the doubt that is not cooperating with the unavoidable, but the doubt that leads us all to be, always to be in a state of argument with the unavoidable. You know, and part of that, the way that doubt manifests in that argument in a retreat, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the parallel agendas which are really investing in ambivalence and fear. I think we don't always appreciate how much renunciation and letting go is really an act of faith. How much renunciation and letting go is an act of faith. Because often with renunciation and letting go, we're kind of letting ourselves settle, drop into something we don't know. Hmm? Where the, the purpose of clinging is to keep us in the territory of what we do know, even if it's miserable. We know it. Whereas how often renunciation, letting go, is really an, an easing, a yielding into what we don't know, and how often that really is an act of faith. But you know, it's a faith. Renunciation is a faith of 
and we, it's a face of protecting what we value. Often it is that, you know, even on an ethical level, when we, when we let go of like unkind speech, aren't we protecting what we value? It's having faith in kind speech. You know, when we let go of distractedness, aren't we protecting what we value? You know, clarity, wakefulness, it's an act of faith. Bright faith. Bright faith arises when our hearts are, I think, really touched by goodness, the courage, the fearlessness that we see around us. You know, when you, you read a story of, of a Dutch woman in the Holocaust who, who dedicated herself to saving the lives of countless Jewish children, you know, and she was in prison, she was tortured, and each time she was released, she saved another child. You know, we listen to the story of a young Tibetan nun, imprisoned, isolated, who learns to whisper her prayers of compassion for her jailers. And I think sometimes when we really open our eyes to the, the qualities of goodness and compassion and courage around us, the possibility of the heart for unshakable fearlessness and compassion, we have very bright faith. I, I know for, for me, and I think it's true for many people, I had very bright faith in the honeymoon phase of my own practice. You know, the new discoveries, the eye-opening, the, you know, it was all very exciting. It was all very exciting for a while. You know, and, and it, you know, felt filled with passion and enthusiasm and commitment, you know. And, and I know for, like many of us kind of, you know, teenagers and young people in Asia in the, in the 70s, you know, we were ready to die for the Dharma. Absolutely, you know, in some, uh, yeah, we were really ready to die for the Dharma, you know, sitting there with amoebic hepatitis, you know, rocking back and forth and, arguing, and die on the cushion, you know, it was really this kind of enthusiasm. And then, you know, kind of begin, began to see the size of the cloth of delusion the incredible power of habit, the layers of suffering and confusion we can carry. See the resistance, can see resistance to that, but we might also see that the flowering of faith actually really does often grow in the darkest days of our life. The darkest days that ask for care and for patience and for compassion and perseverance. And I think for many of us who practice for some time, we, we see that transformation from this, this kind of bright, enthusiastic faith into a, a kind of faith of confidence, a faith that's really rooted in, in wisdom, a confidence of faith, a confident faith that arises from the depths of our own heart and experience of understanding doubt can certainly reappear, but it's really seen as being, you know, one of those obscuration factors, a, a mental state, and not given authority, not given authority. We sometimes learn that the only answer to those ways of doubt is to let go of all the grand ideas of progress, of enlightenment, and, you know, sometimes to come to that Zen place, you know, that says, the difficulties that I'm experiencing now are going to be with me for the rest of my life. Then what? Then what? 
learning to let go of the fascination with content and committing ourselves right, to just one sitting, just one walking. Sometimes in the waves of doubt, even that can feel too much. So maybe we commit ourselves to just one breath, one sound, one moment of wakefulness. And sometimes all we can do is stand still for a moment and to relax into doubt and to know it's a wave, a mental state that will pass. And each time, it's like each time we can stand still, we are deepening confidence. Living in the light of what we know to be true challenges the tendency to try and make things solid. And we really do begin to see that every moment of clinging is a moment of suffering. And that every moment of non-clinging is a moment of freedom. And it's almost as if we need to see this over and over again. So, and our understanding really deepens in that seeing. And maybe we begin to see that the only real unfailing refuge in this unstable life and world is a refuge of knowing what is true and living in the light of that understanding. The refuge of understanding, the refuge of not holding. This is the freedom of non-clinging the freedom of the non-dwelling heart, learning to release suffering and the causes of suffering, knowing when we let go of the causes of suffering, we let go of suffering. I think with that scene, we begin to sense the possibility of a heart that is really unshakable. Now the practice of non-clinging, the practice of non-fixing, it not only deepens faith, it brings with it such a greater sense of spaciousness, of ease, and more and more a genuine, the taste of freedom that the Buddha speaks about, an unarguable freedom. We begin to see the glimmers of the falling away of fear and resistance and doubt. And what we really begin to understand is the teaching of non-self, the teaching of emptiness that there is no thing that has an abiding self-existence. And we begin to really have an unshakable faith in that understanding. It's important to understand faith is not, uh, it's not in something. That the deepest of all faith is expressed in the understanding of emptiness that is applied to all things. That emptiness or non-self is not, a, again, not a state, not a noun. You know, emptiness has no independent self-existence. Emptiness has no independent self-existence. So emptiness is also empty. Isn't that neat? We don't even cling to emptiness. You know? Emptiness is also empty. It's a verb, a way of seeing that permeates, runs through runs through and embraces all things. Emptiness has no abiding independence of existence. So Kappa once said that unborn emptiness has let go of the extremes of being and non-being. Emptiness is the track on which the centered person moves. 
Weineng. He said, emptiness includes the sun, moon, stars, and planets, the great earth, mountains and rivers, all trees and grasses, bad people and good people, bad things and good things, heaven and hell. They are all in the midst of emptiness. No abiding self-existence anywhere. Now, understanding that very deeply really, really does undoes the tendency to cling, really undoes the tendency to grasp hold of anything, really undoes the tendency to, to want to build these edifices, houses, monuments, views of I, you, me, them. Why would we do that on the grounds of shifting sands? It makes no sense. Understanding emptiness or non-self is also something we practice. We practice non-clinging. And the more we practice it, the more we understand it. And the more we understand it, the more we sense, really sense the freedom of non-clinging. You know, we go through the day and we all have a range of mental states, perhaps sadness, happiness, excitement, dullness, eagerness, anger. It's what a mind and a heart has. What does the practice of emptiness mean in the midst of all of that? Hmm? It means that we give no authority to all that. There, no authority is given to that arising and passing. And no authority is given through non-clinging and non-selfing. We build no views. It's, I often think of it like walking meditation. You know, like when you have a, you're on your walking path, and you have the ground beneath you, and yet you can sort of feel like in that walking path, there's this range of different feelings, this range of different thoughts, sights, sounds. They're all appearing, aren't they? All the sensations in your body. And yet there's something in your walking path where you're just walking through them all. You know, you can have that feeling of walking through the mental state, walking through the sights, walking through the sounds, walking through the sensations, not being swayed, knowing that deeply that all things that arise with conditions will also pass with conditions, and yet the understanding it is the track upon which the centered person moves. The understanding of emptiness. We have a range of experiences. We call them good sittings. We call them bad sittings. Good sitting, good walkings, difficult walkings. Why not? Why not? And yet to know that and take hold of nothing, to build no view of I am, I am not, to go through life meeting everything that life can bring, lovely people, difficult people, adversity, joy, and to know the fleeting nature of all experience. Hold them all with compassion, with care, free of clinging, free of holding. And we begin in that to see so clearly the third noble truth. The third noble truth of freedom, of awakening, is really rooted in the first noble truth of unsatisfactoriness and change. We begin to know so deeply that faith is rooted in doubt, just as emptiness is really rooted in form. That faith and non-clinging, non-selfing 
are interwoven to nourish one, to cultivate one, is to ripen the others. And their coming to maturity is what is described in this tradition as the unshakable heart, unshakable faith, unshakable non-clinging, unshakable emptiness. And what we practice at first that can feel so frail and, uh, and shaky does with practice become unshakable. And Dogen, I'll close with Dogen, once said that to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. To be awakened by all things is to let body and mind of self and others fall away. Even the traces of awakening come to an end, and this traceless awakening continues endlessly. If we have a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.